This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 159 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Just want to give a quick shout out for Newbies Remote Conf, which is going on in July for new people, or if you want to speak to new people. Uh, we also have a special guest this week, and that is Mark Dalrymple. Yes, I'm Mark Dalrymple, longtime programmer. These days, I wrote code and words for the Big Nerd Ranch. Awesome. Now, Big Nerd Ranch is based in Atlanta, I think. That's correct, but I'm actually based in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. Oh, okay. So how does that work? Uh, the ranch is a very remote-friendly operation, so a lot of the day-to-day interaction and water cooler talk happens via Slack. We use online tools like Basecamp, GitHub, all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so I'm very much in with everybody else that's uh, going on with uh, day-to-day work. And I go down once a quarter or so to the mothership, mainly for food, but also to hang around with folks uh, and catch up office gossip and all that kind of stuff. Cool. Well, uh, we brought you on today to talk about uh, debugging, I think, <laughs> or troubleshooting. Yeah, troubleshooting, debugging, performance tuning also falls into the same camp. It's one of my favorite topics, mainly because through just the course of my entirely too long career so far, I've been kind of good at it. And as part of my day-to-day ranch duties, I need to explain to people whether blog sites or in person in a training class, kind of the techniques that... I go through the kind of mindsets that are necessary so that you can get your bug fixed and move on to something more useful with your time. Interesting. So it seems like you have a universal process for troubleshooting. Yes, I discovered this, oh, probably in the late 90s. It was this totally bizarre site I stumbled across, uh, troubleshooters.com, and it's actually still there. Back then, um, the author, uh, Steve Litt, had this quarterly magazine of articles about troubleshooting all written by himself. So it was like three or four years of back issues of this magazine with a dozen articles all by the same guy talking about the same stuff. But the thing that he's talking about is what he calls the universal troubleshooting process. And I was reading through these things. It's like, oh, this is kind of cool. It's a generalized process of breaking down a problem into easier to digest chunks so that you can approach it rather than being completely overwhelmed by whatever problem you're trying to solve. And Steve applied the same sequences of operations to auto repair, uh, stereo system repair, fixing software, as well as learning new technical systems. And I gave a talk to some of our ranchers, thing we call nerd share time, about the universal troubleshooting process. And one of my friends who was a uh, submariner, he was in the Navy for a couple of years and said that, yeah, we have a very similar process for when we're diagnosing things like the nuclear reactor or when things are going <laughs> wrong with, with hardware under the water. I was like, okay, yeah, cool. It is a fairly universal 
process. I really like this idea. My background is in hardware, so I've done a lot of hardware troubleshooting and then, of course, software debugging. And they really are very similar sorts of things, even in completely different domains. So having a universal process, it's really a process and a way of thinking. It's, fun, cool. it's funny because when I saw it, I was like, oh, so what everybody does, they put in a print statement and then they guess. <laughs> well, maybe it's not that universal. So, <laughs> so fundamental universal pro- troubleshooting process is life support around a binary search. So you need to kind of get all your ducks in a row. So there are a couple parts of the process. I won't go through the entire thing with you. You can read it online. But there are a couple, I call them meat-oriented parts of the process that talk to kind of more your humanity than the actual, like, here's the bits and bytes you talk to. And the first one was uh, originally called Get the Attitude. He since renamed it to Prepare. But you have to psych yourself up for solving a problem. It's like, I have this big software problem. If it's not killing people, if we're not losing millions of dollars per minute that our servers are down, maybe now is not the right time to start debugging this thing because I just came off of an all-night Jägermeister bender or something. So get the attitude of like, yes, I can fix this problem. You psych yourself up. This problem is solvable, even though it seems like a completely bizarre race condition that will probably suck away a month of my life. It's like, sure, that could happen, but hey, hoorah, let's go fix this bug. So you start beating your chest, shaking your head. Uh, yeah, a little primal screaming, and then usually I clean off my desk because most of the time it's disaster area. But I tend to work fairly well if my, you know, my, my cage is clean. So I'll clean off the desk, do my primal scream, and then start figuring out what's going on. Well, if I clean off my desk, it'll be three days before I get started. Sometimes getting the attitude can be an effective procrastination mechanism. <laughs> but it makes sense, right? You get yourself into that mindset. And yeah, cleaning the desk is a good way to do it. Right. And then if you're dealing with hardware, you want to make like a plan so you don't destroy your hardware, like shorting a a nice circuit to the mains or your car battery is going to explode in your face. Uh, You want to get a uh, as complete of a symptom description as possible. And then once you can reproduce the system and then once you can reproduce the symptom, then you can start doing things like, okay, does my project still build? Does it run? Are there any warnings? Maybe I should fix my warnings. Maybe I should make sure that my database is sane. If their hardware connections are any of the pins bent, that kind of stuff. And then after that, you binary search through your code. And I've got all sorts of stuff I can talk to you about the details of that kind of thing. Replace or repair the defective component, like put in a new amplifier tube, put in a new battery, fix your software, test it land it. And then the ninth step is one when I first discovered it, I really just kind of stopped and stared at the headline for a while, but it was take pride in your solution. It's like, does this really help me like know in my code review when somebody is making sure that I didn't introduce new bugs. But the fundamental thing is that we are all pieces of meat, ambulatory talking pieces of meat. And we are creatures that that we crave good feedback. And so being able to say, it's like, Hey, yeah, I fixed this problem. It was hard. Here's how I did it. Sometimes I blog about it. Sometimes you go to the Slack channel and says, Hey, I finally fixed that table view text sizing bug that's been plaguing us. I've got a, a contractor friend, Jeff Suhey. He worked in, in a cubicle with the rest of us, but he had Christmas lights decorating his entire office area. Whenever he fixed a hard bug or implemented a really gnarly piece of uh, functionality, he would plug in the lights. 
And so everybody knew that if the lights were blinking, Jeff did something awesome, and he's got a great story to tell. So we'd all migrate over to his cubicle, and he'd tell us his fix or show us his new implementation. And we all got to participate in this. It was like, wow, this is really cool and awesome. And Jeff was kind of sneaky. He actually used this as a communication mechanism for people of being able to say, yeah, I fixed this problem. And I noticed there's kind of this lurking problem in our software that really should address. And he was able to disseminate that information amongst people a lot easier than, say, a blanket email to engineering would have. Yeah, for me, I have a couple of victory songs, like the Rocky theme from the movie. <laughs> You've got to fly now. And I just, I just crank it up. <laughs> It certainly is a really great feeling when you finally fix a problem. You've been troubleshooting, and I think, of course, the satisfaction is sort of proportional to how long it, it took you to figure it out. Because I know bugs that I work on for a day or two or even longer feel a lot better when I finally understand and fix them than ones that you know take me five minutes. Well, the what other I thing is, is that it's really easy to get caught up in, okay, I fixed this one, what's the next thing? And if we take a minute to celebrate... I mean, that, that is the feedback we need. And we definitely need to be positive about this stuff. I had a success. And that is one of the things that I think keeps a lot of people going, is that they feel successful. They feel like they've made the contribution. So why not celebrate it for a few minutes? And they lead to great stories. I love stories. I mean, I still think that programming is fundamentally in the stone knives and bearskins, and we're teaching each other language across from campfires stage. Of things. So being able to hear what other people have gone through, it's become one of my favorite interview questions. So after you melt their brain for a little bit with interview questions, then it's like, what's your favorite bug? Or what was your most interesting bug? And you can usually see the eyes light up and it's like, oh yeah, here's this really cool thing. And you won't believe what happened here. It's also a good icebreaker at like conferences. If you're sitting around the breakfast table or the lunch table and everybody's studying the buffet food on their plate intently, just bring up the favorite bug question. And then people start talking about their, their war stories. And it's a lot of fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it is something really dumb. And so it's, you know, you get the stories that it's like, yeah, this was really, really rough. And we did all these things and we figured out what the bug was and whatever. And sometimes it's a good laugh when somebody shares the story of, yeah, I went through the motions like eight times and then I figured out I forgot a semicolon. <laughs> so you have to tell us your, your favorite bug then, Mark. Oh, my favorite bug is, um, it was on a large graphical product for a large company you've heard of. It was right before an announcement of the simultaneous release of the first Linux version, the latest Mac version, and a Windows version. It was like four or five days before this huge announcement, and two of us were basically paged in from other projects to help out on it. And it ended up being a two-byte source code fix and a two-bit change in the executable. So this particular product, you could drag in graphics files from the desktop and drop them into the main window, and it would plaster the image all over the content that the user was, was looking for. And it's a pretty fundamental feature, and it had been in the product forever. This was back in the time when Apple was transitioning from the PowerPC architecture to the brand new ICBMs, the Intel-based Mac computers. So on PowerPC, you could drag in an image, and it would work perfectly. On one of the new Intel Macs, it just did absolutely nothing. So it was very easy to reproduce, thank goodness. So 
my friend Dan on the West Coast and me on the East Coast, we both got a call from the project manager saying, hey, can you take a look at this bug? Today is Wednesday. We're hoping to announce this thing. Or actually, we are announcing this thing to the world on Monday, and we need this fixed. And our regular Mac developers are working on more important bugs, but this one is still a showstopper. And so we went through basically reproduce the problem. Yes. Set breakpoints. Like, was our Apple event handler being called? Okay. Was it finding the right image file? No, the finder is not lying to us. It's actually the right image file. And we finally tracked it down to one set of code, loading the file, seeing if it is its kind of graphic format. No, it's not. Throw an exception. Throw this is an unknown graphic file format exception. And then an exception handler in another shared library would catch that exception and then try PNG file and GIF files and the simple files. And it was these simple files that were having the problem. Okay, so we were very confused. On the PowerPC, we could see that the exception handler was catching this, hey, graphic file format, fall back to the easy formats. And on the Intels, it was not. Okay, this is kind of bizarre. Now, it was a big C++ code base, and throwing exceptions across shared library boundaries is not necessarily a good idea to start out with, but that's what it was. And we were scratching our heads. We were wondering, it's like, what is going on here? And it took us a full day to get to this point. So we went to our internal IRC channel and asked our smarter friends, hey, we're seeing this weird exception difference on PowerPC versus Intel. And one of the smartest guys I've ever worked with piped up and said, oh, yeah, GCC4, they changed their runtime metadata format. In GCC3, PowerPC, it was a string. In GCC4, Intel, it's a structure. And that's what the problem was. On the PowerPC, the underlying mechanism was happily comparing two strings for equality. Sure enough, same exception name in both places, Groovy. On the Intel, they were structures private to each shared library. So a simple pointer comparison was not saying these two exceptions are the same. So we changed our runtime loading command, dlopen, instead of having private symbols using public symbols, and that fixed the problem. So it was two-character change in the symbol, which ended up being a two-bit change in a constant. There was a whole lot of mop-up work after that just to make sure we didn't break anything, but it was a very good C++ code base, so we ended up not having any name collisions or that kind of stuff. So the fix made it, and we shipped in time for the Monday conference. Nice. Yeah, that was quite the story. (laughs) So it was two (laughs) engineer days for two characters for two bits. But don't you feel lucky that the, that your colleague in IRC just happened to know that know about that change? That was, if you believe in miracles, that was a miracle. Knowing Marson, um, he knows everything about everything, so it's just eventually the question would have gotten to him and he would have, would have <laughs> answered it. But if we hadn't have had that pointer, we would have dug into things. We would have broken out to the disassembler, seeing where things were being done under the hood, and then discovered, hey, stir comp here, hey, pointer comparison here, and then figure out that this shared library runtime uh, symbol mechanism had changed in the major compiler version. I, I'm afraid I would not have found that bug. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you need to get the attitude. It's like, hey, yeah, yeah, we can do this. Yeah, it was, was two of us working late into the night and into the next day. So having another person to bounce things off of, we actually managed to get it to the exception throwing and catching probably fairly quickly in the process, maybe about three or four hours into it. And then the rest of it, good chunk of time being confused until we finally asked for help. 
I guess that goes to show that it's never wrong to ask for help because you never know what will just show up. I want to ask about part of the troubleshooting process that you mentioned before the show. And it's something I've thought a lot about and, and learned from my dad, who's a, a really good engineer. But you talked about when you debug with others, a big problem is they sort of preform an idea and, and they, they, they start to assume things. Can you talk a little bit about that? I've never experienced this. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, it never, ever. Uh, yeah. Ever, ever happens. So you know, if you think of like what it takes to go to somebody else for help, that kind of puts you in a vulnerable position of I've admitted to myself that I am not a super being that I cannot solve all problems with a wave of my mighty meaty paw. And I need to go to another human being and, and beseech them for a chunk of their time to help me out. I am taking their life force for my benefit. Now, it sounds kind of a big downer that way, but you no. Know, Go through the, the your background mental processes. That's kind of what's happening. So everybody wants to be prepared. It's like I'm taking up Mark D's time. So when somebody says, "Hey, Mark D, I have this problem," they want to prove that they have done their due diligence, that they have looked at this code path, that code path, this scenario, that scenario, these compiler settings, these library settings, and all this stuff. And I can understand that because, hey, I've put hours and hours of work in on this. I want to have something to show for it, even if it's just I can demonstrate something has happened or they erase my whiteboard and I want to fill it up with uh, boxes and lines. But from the point of view of somebody who wants to fix this problem, it's like, this is the first I've heard of it. You're showing me code. I can't even visualize what's going wrong with the program. So I usually nod and smile for about five minutes. It's like, okay, that, that's pretty cool. Just show me the problem. And then if they can reproduce the problem, then we can start through the troubleshooting process. I can start asking questions. I can start getting into the everything I know is wrong. Let's start finding things that are correct. Move those into the bucket of here's where the program is working well. Here's where the program is not working well. And then continue that way to find the solution. So usually I let them talk for a little while. And then like, that's very nice. Nod and smile. Let's start from the beginning. I'm kind of curious here. You, you've brought up reproducing the bug a couple of times, and sometimes that's really easy, right? Like your example with the Intel Max happened on every one of them, so it was pretty easy to reproduce. You just had to have the right machine. What if you can't reproduce it reliably? What if there are outside circumstances or other things in the code that affect that? Oh, yeah, race conditions. Those are especially fun. Or if you have networking problems. No, nobody ever has networking-related issues. Well, that kind of thing is you just kind of have to chew on it. So some bugs, particularly easy to reproduce bugs, they are for all intents and purposes dead because if you can reproduce it, you can binary search through your code, find out what the problem is. It may be something that can't be fixed, but at least you've found the problem. For the intermittents, you just kind of have to keep on collecting information. So if you've got a logbook or a text file or a voodoo pad or something, every time you get a new little scrap of information, you throw it in the pile, reevaluate it, and then can I wait for a while so I get more information? Can I add some instrumentation? Maybe I can add some caveman debugging, which then the user can tap an icon and then mail it to me. I've successfully used that in some of my products where I just kind of log a little bit too much, put it into a text file, and if somebody comes across one of these one in a million problems in the field, I can say, okay, go to our secret debug screen and tap the send diagnostics button, and it'll send me a text log of stuff. Maybe there's something interesting in there. Maybe if I can isolate it to a subsystem, I can start putting asserts or 
sanity checks around code where, hey, this may be where something's going on. If it's an intermittent crasher and I can log into the machine, maybe I could log into, log into the machine, like on a Mac or, say, a web server, and attach a debugger to the program. I've done that before. Log into somebody's machine. They start up the GUI application. I attach with a debugger and just let it sit there until the problem happens. And then maybe I can find out, ooh, smoking gun, I can fix this. Or at least it'll give me kind of a good position in time where we can see what's going on. Maybe you can gather information outside of the program. You've got a GUI application and one user where it crashes all the time. Have them start a screen recording. Use the program. When it crashes, they can send in the screen recording and you can see, wow, they are spastic or wow, they're really slow. They may be falling into a race condition between the button click and the animation. So there's all sorts of things that, that you can try for intermittent problems. I think this is the time where I share my favorite bug. Do it, do it, do it. <laughs> so this was actually in the automated tests that we had for our system. I was working at Crime Reports at the time, crimereports.com. And I had written most of the code and most of the tests around geocoding data. So police departments would send us basically GPS information, but it was all encoded for their area. So I had to convert it to latitude, longitude. And so I would put it in and then I had all these automated tests around it. And the test would pass when I was at work, but one of my coworkers was working late for those two weeks. And I'd come in in the morning the next day with a nasty email in my email box and a nasty note the next time I checked out and ran the test saying, clean this up, it doesn't pass, on passing tests. And I just I couldn't figure it out. You know, I it's working now. I don't know what you want me to do. So I'd delete his message out of the test, and then I'd come back the next day, and it was the same thing, and finally figured out that I was running the tests on UTC, and it was checking dates, among other things, for the crimes that are, had occurred. Oh, time zones. And it was checking the dates against UTC versus Mountain Time, which at the time was UTC minus 6. So what would happen was the test would start failing at 6 p.m. And since I was going home at 5 p.m., I never saw them fail. But since he was running his tests, running the automated tests, when he was checking in, he would see these at 7 o'clock p.m. And then he'd send me a nasty gram. And, uh, yeah, it took about two weeks for me to figure out, oh, it's encoding these dates as UTC, and then it's comparing them to Mountain Time. And so I was able to clear that up uh, just by making all of the dates and all of the times UTC, and that seemed to work good. And then it would do the translations in another part of the code for wherever people were viewing from. <laughs> oh, yeah, that but, sounds like fun. But reproducing it was, you know, I'd show up to work the next day, and it worked fine. It kind of reminds me of, it's this classic bug of a system administrator got an email from a scientist saying that they couldn't send email more than 350 miles. Like, I'm talking <laughs> like milliseconds. Like, no, it's like 350 miles. I try to send email to this person here and it doesn't make it. I, I can send it to this other person that's closer. And through hours of analysis, we figured out it's about 350 miles away from my computer. And it's like, that is bizarre. And it finally turned out to be related to DNS lookups and the speed of light in terms of things were timing out but not coming back oh, wow. in terms of DNS requests. And so it's, um, it's one of those things worth looking up on the Internet just to see just like how even the most bizarre problem description may actually have a kernel of truth in it. 
I liked something you said right at the beginning of that discussion, which was about putting a basically putting a button in your software that can save out a log with extra logging information. I've had a a menu option like that in, in a Mac app that I that I have uh, for many years now, and it it has saved me and helped me find bugs so many times I can't even count. And maybe even more importantly, it's often helped me just with regular customer support where this this app connects to a variety of external hardware and not all of which I have on hand to test with. I'd have a warehouse full of hardware if, if that were true. So, you know, I'll get a report from a user and they, they can't get something to work and I have them send me a log and, you know, sometimes it's a bug or something with the hardware that I didn't know about because I couldn't test it. But a lot of the time it's a user error and I'm just so much more quickly able to find it when I can see what the program's actually doing and what's actually going wrong instead of, oh, it doesn't work, you know, which is often about all you get from a user. So I can't really stress enough how valuable that's been to me. And I don't see it in a lot of software. Yeah. All the iOS software that I own that basically I have done most of the work on and they're not for a client. I have a, a secret gesture, which opens up a debug panel. So my two finger triple tap on the company logo at the top. And the thing will spin around. It's just this ugly screen full of buttons, which have the report diagnostics as well as maybe some pre-release features or things you can toggle a testing mode uh, for generating synthetic data kind of thing. So that's useful for like beta testers. It's like, hey, I want you to test in this particular scenario, do the, the triple tap and change these settings. And our support crew also sometimes uses that for you know, getting the diagnostics, as well as we had some iCloud problems. You imagine that for doing things like clearing uh, iCloud caches, for instance, or kind of unwedging some of the things that iCloud can get into. Well, I'm curious. Uh, our, our audience, of course, is mostly, well, Presumably, almost all iOS developers, either iOS developers or aspiring iOS developers. So, uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the specific tools that we have at our disposal as iOS developers. And I think, of course, the first one that comes to mind is Xcode and the Xcode debugger. Mm -hmm. Do you think people use Xcode and the debugger to their fullest capabilities? Oh, oh, nobody does because there are so many features. Um, just for, for fun, just do help inside of LODB and just start reading and you'll probably be there for a week because there's just so much functionality packed into the console mm -hmm. and only some of that is surfaced inside of Xcode, but a bunch is and things like, like quick look, being able to quick look images or RTF data or strings is just absolutely wonderful when you're inside the GUI. Yeah. And Xcode breakpoints, there's a huge amount of power there. You can use it as kind of a, a form of caveman debugging just for doing logging. You can have it speak stuff. You can put in conditionals, like only break here if this is the 12th time through the loop, because, you know, the first 11 times are fine, but things kind of break down 12th, 13th, 14th time. So instead of having to hit continue 13 times, you can just say, Xcode, count down this value, and when it hits this, fire the breakpoint. And all of the stuff you've just mentioned now is in Xcode with regular UI in Xcode. But even even so, I think people don't realize it or don't use it. Um, but there's also a lot hidden behind the LLDB command line interface. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I make no bones that I'm a huge fan of command line interfaces. And I also like caveman debugging, which is putting in print statements, finding your problem, and then taking them out. The nice thing about both the LLDB command line and the caveman debugging is that you have a record of what happened after the run is over. So you print out some values, you put some stack traces with BT, the backtrace command, put some stack traces there, print out values, and then five, six, seven runs from now, it's like, 
hey, wait a minute, didn't I see something similar to this back then? You can go back to the text logs and, and take a look at it. And that's, that's information you don't get when you purely do the hover over a variable and see a value. Those things are ephemeral. They will go away. There's not any kind of permanent log that you can go back to later if you've got a particularly nasty problem. Yeah, and uh, one little feature I like uh, is that you can actually set a breakpoint that will continue automatically. So it doesn't actually stop, but it runs an action every time it's hit. And the action is is just an LLDB command. So it's really easy actually to make a breakpoint that will continue, but will log something. And I think one reason that's really useful is that you it takes you a while to get to where you're reproducing a bug. And if you have to stop the app, add some additional code, and then relaunch it, it may be hard or take a long time to, to get back to where you were. And this way you can put new print statements in your code without having to restart the whole thing. Right. And also, many folks don't realize that you can set breakpoints on arbitrary functions. So maybe you're getting a strange log that looks like it's coming deep from within core graphics. Like, hey, you're double disposing a graphics context here. And if you don't think of putting a breakpoint on NS log, for instance, or printf, then you're going to be spending a lot of time trying to reproduce that problem. But if you can put a breakpoint right when it's printing it, then you can get a stack trace both with the deep within Apple's toolkit and hopefully your stuff on a stack too and find out exactly what you're doing that is triggering that problem. I knew we'd get to print statements. <laughs> oh, I, I love print statements. Um, I, I, I'm trying to popularize the phrase caveman debugging. I didn't invent it, but I don't remember where I first heard it from. But it's my favorite kind of like, yeah, caveman debugging. Oog, oog. Mongo's put breakpoint setting, blah, blah, blah. Um, I was recently reading a book, um, I think it's Programmers at Work, with interviews with some of the really big names in programming. I think Rob Pike was in there, that kind of caliber of developer. And about two-thirds of them said that they don't regularly use debuggers, but use plain old print statements. That may be a side effect of coming from eras where the tools weren't that great. But no, sometimes if you're trying to get a feel for the flow of control as well as values that are changing over time, sticking in a couple print statements can give you that information with a minimal amount of having to click, click, click to set up these breakpoints and then having to tear them down afterwards. Yeah, one thing that I usually use them for is I just put them in a couple of spots just to get an idea of where things are occurring. It's a fast way to validate my thinking as far as where things are at. And then if I do need a picture of the world, then I'll go and I'll pull up a graphical debugger. And if you're learning a new API, it's great. Override every delegate method, put in a print statement, and print out the arguments just to see what the flow of control is into and out of, say, MP music player controller and your own code, and what's inside notifications, for instance. Yep. One other step that I see in this troubleshooting process that I want to push on a little bit, because I have arguments with people about this. It's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> but you have you have test. Did the symptom go away? Did you cause any new problems? An automated test suite is a nice thing to have at this stage. And this is something that I find to be indispensable when I'm writing code that, you know, who knows who's going to use it and what they're going to do with it. Having an automated test suite, for me, then when I go in to debug something or figure something out, it's like, okay, well... It says all of these things are working, and it gives me an idea of where to go. But also, when I start making changes, it tells me, oh, there was an assumption that this would work this way, and you've changed it. But a lot of people, they're just like, you know, testing is that much more work. 
or I don't get that much value out of it, or they have all kinds of arguments where they say that they don't want to test. And I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, because, because I see this benefit where I don't have to think about all of these different assumptions being made. And yet other people are like, well, that's just too much more work. Well, do you have any like questions that are slightly controversial, like maybe like VI versus Emacs or, or something? <laughs> yeah. Braces, braces on the same line or a new line? <laughs> yeah. So I've been on, on both sides of the, um, of that discussion. I believe in tests. Tests are great when it's possible and tractable. That's kind of the hard part. I worked on a product when I was at, at Google that was kind of an infrastructure, low-level kind of stuff. And our goal was to have 90% code coverage, which if you've ever tried to get high-level code coverage, is a hell of a lot of work. But it, our team agreed to it. Our managers agreed to it. So now we made sure we went up the chain. Our engineering directors, it's like, our velocity could be slower um, because we are aiming for a ridiculously high coverage, and this is why. And if it got below 90, we considered that a code red, and like nothing would change until we got it back to 90. And usually we're around 92, 93. And it was a lot of fun when the whole Mac group then started getting into the testing continuous uh, integration kind of thing. We were already like four or five rungs up on the uh, testing capability ladder compared to like groups that were coming in from the absolute ground ground level. So for that kind of stuff, it's absolutely wonderful. If you're primarily gluing together things like AV foundation with UI table view with MP music player controller, getting stuff from AF networking, writing unit tests against gigantic Apple and third party API is difficult. So that's where things like the newish UI testing stuff comes in handy where you can at least like run the app, have it do stuff and then compare before and after. But if primarily you're gluing other people's code together, tests are hard. But if you have a lot of control over the data structures, the interfaces, how things work, the touch points to places outside of your control, if you've got good control over that kind of stuff, then good testing and a high level of code coverage can save you a whole lot of pain. Yep, I completely agree with everything you just said. <laughs> and I, I have felt those pains too, testing. I mean, sometimes you're just, you're running against something and it's it's not reliable or it's not easy to really get your fist around it so that you can plug your test suite into it or on top of it or around it. So you, you kind of do the best you can to characterize what's happening around it without actually having to touch it. But yeah, then in any other case where you, yeah, you have control over the interface and control over uh, how things are going to kind of come together having tests around that, testing those interfaces, testing the way that they, uh, the different systems talk to each other so you have those integration tests, and then the high-level tests where you're actually, like you said, running the app and making sure that things happen top to bottom, front to back. Those are all highly valuable because then you know that the assumptions you're making about how things work actually hold up. And then when you can't test it, a lot of times I put some kind of documentation around it that says, uh, this is really hard to test. Here are a couple of ways where you can sort of verify how it works, but we're not putting this into the automated test suite because it's not reliable. Right, and I think that's the best way. It's, it's pragmatic, and yet there's information for people who need it. One of my favorite features from Xcode 7 is that they included code coverage. Click it, turn it on in your scheme, run your program, go to the help browser, and you can now see your code coverage percentages. So even if you don't have aiming for a huge amount of code coverage, you can at least tell what things are covered heavily. So if all your model classes have heavy coverage and 
if you have skinny view controllers, there's not a whole lot of coverage there, then that's fine. If it's the other way around, then okay, we need to do more concentration on the code that, that we control. And I kind of find it interesting just in a software spelunking point of view. It's like, what parts of the code are actually being run when I perform a particular feature? So if I'm new on a project, I might use code coverage to see where the hotspots are or to see is the place where somebody said, yeah, we've got 13 toolbar implementations here, but the one you need to implement your button on is this guy here. That actually happened to me in a contracting project. And it's like, all right, trust, but verify. So I set breakpoints and all the toolbar stuff. And it's like, okay, the toolbar I'm supposed to add stuff is this one, but it's actually triggering this guy in yet another file. So are you sure you want me to work over there? And they're like, uh, no, actually go back to that previous place. So you can use testing tools, even uh, profiling tools as code exploration mechanisms to get a, you know, a different view of how your code is behaving. So one other question I have related to debugging and troubleshooting is a lot of times uh, troubleshooting and debugging is easier on smaller applications that aren't as complicated. They don't have as much going on. So you can kind of hold the whole system in your head. And then you've got these huge systems where you may even have effective teams running around coding against different parts of it that sort of all plug together or are somewhat isolated if you can help it. But with those larger systems, then because there's so much more to know, how do you keep track of everything you have to know in order to properly debug something? Yeah, for those kind of things, I generally try to purge my mind, just assume that everything I know is wrong, and just kind of start from a very open mind. I see the try to get a reproducible problem in the bug, or at least a demonstration of it, so I know where I'm going, get the victory condition so I know when to stop looking. And then you know, I try to go through as what I call my hierarchy of blame, what is the new code around this? So look at source code control, see what's been changed recently. Look at git blame. You may have a feeling of like, okay, something's happening in this file. Maybe the world is being set up strangely. Anything new around here? Okay, is there any like old code around here? And then once I can absolve my code from consideration, which isn't very often, then you can start thinking about third-party library code, system library code, compiler, and whatnot. For the most part, everything is in new code or old code. And then from there, if I am totally unfamiliar with the program, I'll set a breakpoint of where I think it may be just going by names of methods or classes, reproduce the problem or get close to it, and then see if something triggers there. Okay, I now have a place in the code where things may or may not be working correctly. I'll start looking for opportunities to binary search the problem space. We're using this additional framework. Well, if I stub out that framework, if it's not being used at this point in time, or if I just have its functions return hard-coded values, then I can use that to construct scenarios. So maybe this library we're using is giving us a bad value. So I will hard-code it to always return a good value. If the problem persists, okay, the library is absolved, no problem there. If the problem disappears, then I know, okay, there's something going on between my code and this library. So suddenly my problem space has gotten a whole lot smaller. So my main goal, if the problem space is absolutely huge, is figuring out what I can carve off so I don't have to think about it at all. There's something I've seen people that are, especially that are that are new, but I think everybody's a little bit, can be a little bit inclined to this, but that is where you have a bug and let's even assume that you can reproduce it pretty well, but you really don't know what's causing it. 
and you spend some time troubleshooting, probably not following this rigorous troubleshooting process, but you spend some time troubleshooting and, and you really can't figure out what's going on. So you just start changing things. And at some point you change something, but you don't really know what you're changing, right? You're, you're sort of commenting out code or let's try something different. And you do that. And at some point the bug goes away. And I think an inclination can, can, there can be an inclination to say, Oh, great. I fixed it. I'm <laughs> So I think you kind of know what, what I'm talking about, that this happens. And I personally, as hard as it sometimes is, I try to really understand what's going on because I feel like I can't be confident in a fix if I don't really know how that fix uh, actually fixed the bug, you know? I don't know. Anyway, that that's just something I bring up. I wonder if it's something you see or experience yourself. Oh, yeah, I, I, can, I can understand it. One thing I really like about today's embracing of code review, like, GitHub and pervasive uh, pull requests. So having to justify this fix to somebody else helps prevent the kind of, okay, we're going to destroy the world and oops, things suddenly work. I'm just going to check in all my changes because then somebody is going to look at the diff and it's like, what is all this stuff? So there's uh, two parts of the universal troubleshooting process. Narrow it down to the root causes. That is the hack and slash change plus pluses to minus minuses, take out entire huge chunks of code, remove startups of frameworks, return hard-coded values until you figure out what's going on. Then once you figure out what's going on, you've got source code control, or else you better be using source code control if you know what's good for you, is revert all that stuff and then actually make the fix in a rigorous, yes, I understand what's going on, here are the fixes, and here are why. For the longest time, those two kind of worlds conflicted in my mind when I first started my professional career, but it was the other way. I'd been reading all these software engineering books of, yes, when you fix bugs, you really should understand what's going on. Otherwise, you are not a, not a professional. You are a lesser human being. And I took that to be as, okay, as I'm trying to figure out the bug, I'm not understanding it. Therefore, I am a failure. And that really stunted my professional growth for a couple months until Somebody said, it's like, dude, you're, you're looking for bugs. You don't know what's going on. The understanding, that's when you make your fix, send out the pull request, and land it. So understand it end to end before you put it into your main code. But as you're trying to figure it out, if you know what the problem is, you would have fixed it already. So use any and all tools, no matter how blunt or sharp, at your disposal to get to the point of understanding. A lot of our listeners, I don't know, I don't know how true this is. I guess I don't really know, but I think a lot of our <laughs> listeners are relatively new. I mean, that's sort of true of iOS developers as a whole. It's a, it's a growing industry. And so, you know, a fairly large percentage of people are, are sort of new at this. And, and I also, I also teach, uh, brand new iOS developers. So it's something oh, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, conscious of, but I wonder, uh, what, what are your thoughts about resources for getting better at debugging? I mean, you can buy a book to learn how to, to write Swift, right, or to you know <laughs> use some framework or whatever, but I don't see a lot of books about how to do debugging. Yeah, and it's weird because it's something that's entirely teachable. So with new programmers, if I'm mentoring uh, a high schooler or early college grad or something, universal troubleshooting process is something I point them to, and then just a lot of hey, you have this problem, let's sit down, let's work through it step by step. And actually, of all places, an electronic music production forum Slack channel, I've met an individual from Brazil. He's a kid learning Rails programming through an online service. And we were talking about debugging and his frustration with things. And I gave him kind of the, my brief talk of the three buckets of the three buckets that bugs go into. One I call the five-minute fix, 
you look at it and it's like, oh, I've got a wrong parameter to NS log. You just fix it and you go on. There's the one hour to one day fix. It's like, I kind of have an idea of what's going on here. It may take me a little bit of legwork to figure it out. And then there's the OMGWTF, which is, this is completely shaking the foundations of my world. How could this be happening? How can this be happening to me of all people? Where am I going to start? And the thing is, when you're starting out programming, Everything is in that OMG WTF bucket. The bad parameter to NS log, if you don't know anything about variadic functions, then you can't look at this NS log and realize that you're passing a floating point to a percent %s, a string pointer. It takes a little while to get to that information. So as you get more experience, the bugs move down the buckets. So what was an OMG WTF last month is just a one hour or one day this month. And then next month, it's a five-minute fix. And the thing I like about that taxonomy is that it works even for those of us who have been in this game for a long time. So somebody somebody who knows Objective-C inside and out and is learning Swift and is really struggling with it. Well, it's like brand new language, new paradigms. The compiler is iffy sometimes. Sometimes it's not. So you don't have the experience. Everything is an OMG WTF. And so it will just take you extra stress and time to work through it. But you get more experience and things kind of click down into the easier buckets as you go on. Yeah, and I might add that for Swift in particular, there's been the additional complication of the tools being brand new. And so it's getting better every release. But compiler would crash a lot. And you think, well, my fault. But really, no. <laughs> often it was not. Much more often than in Objective-C. Yes, so that is, functionality is reduced. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, and even worse than that, I still, in the last couple of weeks, have maybe once or twice hit into a bug where some code uh, just crashed the compiler outright. Not not even source kit, but just crashed the, the actual compiler. And, you know, I rearranged things and got it to work. But Yeah, and if you're brand new hitting that kind of stuff, it's, you no, know, you've, you've, you've got a, a massive amount of scar tissue compared to a brand new student. And you know, rearranging code to appease the compiler crashing is not something that they would think of. Right. It's very hard to differentiate between things that are your fault and things that are the compiler's fault. And of course, I think usually the tendency among beginners is to be too quick to say that it's the compiler's fault or Xcode's <laughs> fault or whatever. But uh, but even so, it does happen. NS Dictionary is broken. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, I've got a friend, Eric Knapp, who teaches up in Madison, Wisconsin, and, and, and he internalizes a lot of these pedagogical principles of how to teach new Adult programmers, he's, his community college program takes folks who have gone through other careers and are wanting a life change and going in, into programming. And he teaches these folks. And problems he sees over and over again with them when debugging is not focusing on a single bug. They flit around from two or three or four different problems in their code and never make any headway because they're trying to solve four problems in parallel. And human beings are not very good at anything parallelizable. So just being able to say, pick one bug, stick with it to the conclusion, now pick the next one, have a list, have a document, have a piece of paper to keep track of what bugs there are. So if you find yourself getting distracted of, okay, my loop counter is wrong, but maybe even my number of asterisks I'm printing out, I'm doing it wrong here. It's like, okay, don't do that. Just put a note, check asterisk printing function, and then go back to your original problem. Right. I've interacted with Eric a little bit on Twitter because I do some um, – I work on music apps for my job and do some MIDI stuff and that's something he's interested in too. So, But anyway, oh, nice. we should get him on the show. Right? Oh, definitely. He's, he's a lot of fun to talk to. And if you ask him nicely, he might play his Chapman stick for you. I would love to hear that. 
I see him tweet about it, but he's the only person I know that plays one. So yeah, I got to perform with him with uh, James Dempsey and the Breakpoints at a couple of Coco Cops. James Dempsey does a great job, and I've seen him, but not not with Eric there. On uh, did he play his Chapman stick? Yeah, he had his oh, Chapman cool. stick, his effects board, and his laptop, and it was amazing. Oh wow. If there's something I could emphasize, and I try to emphasize this to the people I teach, but that is that debugging is not some skill apart from being a programmer. It's a really vital skill. It's a part of being a programmer. And so I think it's it can be low-hanging fruit to really improve your skill as a developer overall. It's fundamentally problem-solving, and problem-solving comes in a lot of more useful places than debugging, you know, doing design, doing performance tuning, um, even day-to-day code. You know, you're doing problem solving absolutely all the time. So as you get to be a better problem solver, you get to be a better debugger and you get to be a better developer overall. Yeah, and I actually find that I use the debugger as part of my normal programming workflow a whole lot. Not not just chasing bugs, but you know, I'm working out the details of an algorithm or something. I'm often in the debugger doing stuff. Yeah, and I know some folks, I, I've tried it, I, I I don't have the attention span for it, but before they like land new code or after the written code is they single step absolutely every line of it and checking the variables and hovering over things and looking at the dis- data display to make sure that everything is, is correct. Yep, you'd be surprised how some of these slightly more advanced features of the debugger can be helpful even during regular development like that. Is there anything else you think we should touch on, Mark? No, I think we've, we've had a good romp through um, the contents of, of my head. Yeah, I don't have anything to ask about or add either. So Nice. We didn't talk about a lot of iOS-specific stuff, so maybe we should do a, a follow-up show because I think there's a lot we could talk about about instruments and <laughs> some of the advanced LLDB stuff that we did sort of touch on and Um, Oh, and stochastic profiling is one of my favorite names of using the debugger as a profiling tool. So I saw you, you came to Salt Lake and spoke at Cocoa Heads. It's been, I don't know, four or five years ago. Yeah, four or five years. Yeah, that was a a great crowd there. Uh, Were were you out there? Yeah, I was. Oh, excellent. And I remember you talking about that. I'm a slacker. I don't go anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Chuck's here too. And I, I actually met Chuck at Salt Lake Cocoa Heads. So that's why I'm on the show. But... Anyway, we could talk more about that, but I think we've covered a lot of really good stuff. Yep. All right. Excellent. Well, let's hit some picks then. Andrew, do you have some picks for us? I do. I had two picks, and then I completely spaced one of them out. So I guess it'll get saved for another week when I remember it. So I only have one. My pick is a – well, no, I do have two. I, I just realized I'm, I'm going to make this two. My pick, my first pick is a new podcast that I just found out about called Ludophilia and – Apparently, ludophilia means love of games or puzzles or, or something along those lines. But this is a, a new podcast by a guy named Richard Moss that is a podcast about people, play people and things. And my introduction to it was actually a, uh, an episode that came out just a couple days ago where he talked all about Manhole, which is going to be my second pick. Manhole was a, was a game for the Mac that came out in the late 80s that was actually a hypercard stack. It was a hypercard application. And it was by Rand and Robin Miller, who were who were brothers that went on later to start Cyan and, and develop Mist, which for a while was the best-selling game of all time. Anyway, he he did a really great episode about Manhole and what it meant to the history of of computer games and how it led to Mist and sort of these two brothers and how they developed it and how HyperCard was a really important part of that. And I found it absolutely fascinating. And I played Manhole when I was a kid when I was 
um, three years old, my, my dad bought our first Mac and I don't know how old I was, but shortly thereafter manhole came out and, and I played it a lot when I was a kid and it kind of viewed through the lens of my own nostalgia and my childhood as things do. It seems like almost like a magical place, even though now I know it was sort of a, by today's standards, simple black and white hypercard stack. So it's just something I love. And I think there's a, there's a version for iOS uh, out there now that's updated with color and everything. But uh, so those are my picks, Ludophilia and Manhole. Awesome. Hypercard. That's a name I haven't heard in a long, long time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a magnificent piece of software. It really was. I That's my introduction to programming. I didn't know it was programming, but I was playing around with it when I was literally five years old, I think, and could sort of do stuff with it. So it was a really, really cool thing. All right. I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is a book. It is uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. I had it recommended to me a few months ago by somebody who was – we were just chatting about business – in fact, if you want to hear the chat, we actually recorded it, put it on the Freelancer Show. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, we were talking, kept talking about the why of the business. And for me, the business is the podcast and the online conferences. And I finally asked him, I was like, I don't know what my why is. And he's like, well, you have one and you act on it. You just don't know what it is. And then he recommended the book. Um, I'm almost done with it. And so I will probably be able to narrow down a lot of the why and then get a little bit more focused on what we're doing here with the shows and things like that. So far, it's been really an excellent book, an excellent read. So uh, I'm going to pick that. I had another pick, but I can't remember what it was. So I'm just going to pass and uh, we'll let Mark do some picks. All right. Well, I, I picked three of them. The first is um, from Plausible Labs, um, Voodoo Pad, which is a wiki on the desktop. And I actually use it a lot in uh, when I'm debugging something hard is that I can keep track of the conversation between the two voices in my head. One is asking questions and then one is answering questions. And through kind of the Socratic question and answer back and forth, I can track down uh, bugs uh, pretty, pretty effectively. And pretty much if I take notes on anything, it goes into a, a, a voodoo pad. The next one is completely unrelated to anything we talked about, but it's my favorite image editor called Acorn. Um, I've stopped using Photoshop. Um, it's very easy to use, very powerful image editor, plus it's scriptable. In a client project I was on, we were trying to get some third-party designers to give us images that were masks that we could pour colors through and we couldn't get them to understand what we were talking about. So it's like, okay, give me your PDFs of the blue bucket and the green bucket and the yellow bucket. And then I used a script in Voodoo Pad to take the layers from this Photoshop document and splat them out into about 30 or 40 individual PNG files that we could then use for color masking in core graphics. And then my last one is a suggestion to learn and learn deeply in old school text editor VI, Emacs. I admit I'm a big Emacs weenie, or if your Mac style is purely um, something like BB Edit, an old editor with a huge amount of the functionality, the depths of which you may not even be able to fathom why features are there, much less what you could use them for. But as you live inside of a very powerful editor, you can do things that you cannot do in this is my IDE, all you can do is edit Objective C and Swift code. No. There have been times when I've been editing Swift, Objective-C, our Big Nerd Ranch documents are done with DocBook XML markup, have shells running, I've got some shell scripting, some HTML, some Python, all running within a single editor instance. 
And what's really nice is these editors are bulletproof. I can have an Emacs instance running and use it heavily daily and have it running for months. Imagine Xcode running for more than two or three days. So these old school editors pack a lot of power. Once you learn the macro systems or the regular expression systems, you can do things with a couple of keystrokes, which would take a lot of pointing and clicking inside of something like Xcode. I like those picks. My favorite thing about Acorn, besides that it's a really great image editor, is that it's a serious competitor to Photoshop, and it's developed by one guy. One guy, Gus Mueller. Uh, yeah. yeah, he is awesome. Actually, Gus did the original version of Voodoo Pad also before he sold it to uh, Plausible Labs. Yeah, I think uh, Acorn got successful enough. He couldn't really do both, is what it seemed like to me anyway. Yeah. Now it's with some really smart people at Plausible Labs, including Mike Ash. Yeah, Mike Ash. Who, Actually, Mike Ash know. is the one who introduced me to, to Voodoo Pad, because Mike uses it for everything. Mike was on the show for a while as a panelist and has been a guest before, too. So, Oh, excellent. We know Mike. Yep. Mike is awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. If people want to look at what you're working on these days, Mark, uh, what are the best places to go? Probably the best would be on the Big Nerd Ranch blog. I regularly do do blogging there. And pretty much most of my social media is usually just complaining about Xcode. Luckily, that's fairly easy to do. But if there's really, if there's anything interesting, I'll put it on my Twitter feed at Borkware. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this show up. Thanks again for coming. Oh, my pleasure. We'll catch you on. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>